The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 21. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are, they, are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Oh, praise the Lord. What a joy. All we have is Christ and all we need is Christ. <laughs> I love that song. As we start, why don't you pray with me? Father, we, uh, what a privilege it is to call upon you as Father. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, thank you for making us your children. Those whom you will guide and those whom you will counsel with your eye upon. Father, I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing in this world. As evil seems to rise in our perception, you just continue marching forward in the victory of Christ. Lord, I'm so thankful to be a part of that. I'm so thankful to have been brought into fellowship with your son. I thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. I thank you for the way you minister to my heart with your word and the way you lead me in truth. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would taste afresh that powerful working of the Spirit in our lives. That the Holy Spirit would lead us to see Christ more fully. To love you, Lord, more fully. Thank you 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you for grace. Father, please give us grace this morning. Let your word be clearly preached. And uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would apply it in every way that we need. You are our strength. You're our rock. You are our confidence. Lord. You, you are our encouragement. You are our hope. You are our help. And you renew our strength when we wait upon you. So please, Lord, give us strength. Glorify Christ. Oh, please lift high the name of Jesus among us this morning. And glorify your Son. Father, we pray. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so fitting for what we're continuing to look at this morning. So we are continuing our series on growing in grace. And uh, you guys know that what we're talking about when we're speaking of growing in grace, we're not just talking about our mental understanding of grace. We are talking about the actual, if you will, the subjective experience of growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what will keep us faithful to Him. Not trying to convince ourselves of something that's true, but resting by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit in that which is true. We started this series in 2 Peter chapter 3, looking at verse 17 where God calls us as his people to be on guard. To be on guard so that we're not carried away by error or that we wind up falling from our own steadfastness in Christ. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we stand guard? How do we make sure that we don't fall away? Well, the answer comes in verse 18, 2 Peter 3. Contrary to falling away, we're going to be on guard. We're going to stand firm in our steadfastness by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we're going to stand in Christ and we're not going to fall out of Christ or fall away from Christ or be distracted from Christ. So long as we devote ourselves diligently to holding fast to Christ above all else of the way Jesus describes that in John 15, where he defines the entire Christian life simply in one word as abide. 
Abide in Christ. Abide in me, Jesus says. Now in this series, we're asking the question, how do we do that? How do we grow in grace, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the only way to ensure that uh, we are growing in the grace that God has provided us in His Son is to make sure that we are using what are called the means of grace, the instruments that God has appointed for our growth in the Christian life, these spiritual exercises that God has passed on to us saying, I promise I will bless you as you in faith give yourself to me in these ways. We're going to look at more in the weeks ahead. Already this series is longer than I anticipated, but we're going to look more in the weeks ahead. But historically, God's people have recognized three primary means of grace in the life of the church. You have the Word of God, you have prayer, and then you have the ordinances, which there are two ordinances in the church, those Uh, instruments of growth that Christ has ordained for the life of the church. You have baptism. And then what we're looking at right now, you have the Lord's table. Now today we're going to finish looking at how the Lord's table functions as a means of grace. And the key to understanding how it functions as a means of grace is found here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. And really in this verse, we're just focusing on one specific word that appears here, which is that word sharing. This word tells us more about the nature and the experience of Christian worship as it takes place at the table than any other word in the New Testament. According to 1 Corinthians 10.16, when believers come to worship Christ at his table, they are sharing in Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to share in Christ? As I mentioned at the close of last week, the word translated sharing is the Greek word koinonia. This word carries the idea of a close friendship or a communion and fellowship. In fact, in Greek culture, it was even used to refer to the intimacy that is experienced within a marriage union. That a husband and wife had koinonia in their marriage. Now, the word not only speaks to this as an objective reality. It's not simply focusing on something as a reality that we have as a substance that's true. It's not only focusing on that, it also includes the idea of experiencing and enjoying the blessings of that relationship. So if we are in koinonia with someone, if we have fellowship and communion and a friendship with that person, there are two things that are happening there. We have an entity that is the friendship. We have an objective relationship with this person that does not change. But then there's also the experiential side of the friendship, right? You experience the blessing of those with whom you are in friendship, which is why you are their friends, 
There is a blessing that you receive and that you give in this relationship called friendship. Well, that's koinonia. That's what this is talking about when it's talking about us as believers worshiping Christ at his table and sharing in Christ at his table. There is a relationship taking place. There is an experiential side of our relationship with Christ that is being increased when we come to the table of the Lord. You know, it's just like you could think of this as the koinonia of the church, the fellowship of the church. You can join a church and objectively, officially, you can be a member of that church. You can have fellowship with that body of believers. But you and I both know that there is a difference between the official membership that takes place in the church and then the actual experience of fellowship as it takes place among believers. That's what we're getting at when we're talking about this koinonia with Christ. We have an objective fellowship with him by his blood, in his death, through his resurrection, in his ascension to glory. We have an objective friendship with the Lord that the Holy Spirit has brought us into. That's not going to change. But when we talk about sharing in Christ at the table of his grace, we are talking about an experiential side of that fellowship that's taking place by the grace of the Spirit. First Corinthians 10.16 makes clear that worship at Christ's table involves a sharing in or an enjoyment of the blessing of being in intimate relationship with Christ. Now notice how it's described here. How is this fellowship with Christ described? And this is really where the major issue comes to play on how we're to understand the table as a means of grace. Notice what it says here. This fellowship with Christ is defined as a sharing in the blood of Christ. Or it's described as a sharing in the body of Christ. And when does that sharing, when does that fellowship with the blood and the body of Christ take place? Well, according to this verse, it takes place when we come to the table and we partake in the cup of blessing. Or when we come to the table and we partake in the bread that was broken. And so our question today is simply this. What in the world does that mean? That when we come to the table and we have fellowship with Christ in the bread and in the cup. We are actually fellowshipping in the blood and the body of Christ when we take the bread to our lips and put the cup to our lips and drink. There is a fellowship with Christ's body and blood that's happening. What does that mean? Well, historically, this is the issue where most of the disagreement and most of the debate has taken place in regard to the nature of the table right here and what this verse is talking about. This has created more conflict in the history of the church, particularly the last 500 years, than what you would believe. Yeah, there have been huge disagreements about how believers are to worship at the table. There have been other disagreements besides what we're gonna look at today. For example, there have been disagreements about whether you are to use leavened or unleavened bread when you come to the table of the Lord. There have been disagreements about whether or not the bread should already be broken 
and set out before the people or whether the bread should be broken as it is handed over to the people. There's the conflict, the, the disagreements over whether the cup should be filled with water, whether the cup should be filled with wine, whether the cup should be filled with a mixture of water and wine, or as has come up just in the last century, whether it should exclusively be grape juice. That's not, that's not known to church history outside of the last hundred years. I hope you guys know that. So. Another example, should the common people be permitted to drink of the cup or should they only be allowed to eat of the bread? Should only baptized believers be allowed to worship at the table or should only those who are in official membership of a local church be allowed to celebrate at the table or is the table open to any and everyone who will come? Can only known believers participate in the table of the Lord or can known unbelievers come and participate in the table of the Lord? That's what got Jonathan Edwards fired from his pastorate, that issue. I mean, there were other things, but that was the straw. All of these matters are relating to how the table is to be practiced among believers and at one point or another in church history, these all have been very big deals <laughs> to the believers. They have argued over these things. But historically, nothing has been more fiercely debated than what it means for a believer to share in Christ when the believer comes to the table. And so today, as we, well, we've already started, but as we continue starting, what I want to look at is an historical understanding of how different sects in the church or segments of the church in history have viewed what's taking place when believers come to share in Christ at the table. Now we can mention a number of different variations on these things, but generally speaking, there are three main views concerning how the table functions as a means of sharing in the body and blood of Christ. So three main views we're gonna look at. First, and I will be very candid with you, very frank, I. The first one is the one that I love to rail against. So I'm gonna to try to keep my emotions in check on this one. The first position I wanna look at is the Roman Catholic position. How does Rome, the Roman church, understand this sharing or this fellowship with Christ that takes place at the table? Well, they say that we, we share and we fellowship in the body and blood of Christ when we come to the table because we are literally eating and literally drinking his body and his blood in the elements. They say to us Protestants, isn't that what Jesus taught? You who talk about reading the Bible, have you not read John 6? Don't you remember verse 53 where Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 54, he goes on to clarify even further. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that is the one who has eternal life. And I will raise that one up on the last day. Roman church points us to this verse and says, see, 
Jesus said you have to eat his body and you have to drink his blood if you are going to receive the blessing of his grace, which they define as eternal life. Now, if we ask them, well, how in the world are we going to eat Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood? How are we going to drink his blood nowadays? He's not even among us. He's physically in heaven. So how are we going to do this? Well, they will point us to Matthew 26, 26 and say, well, isn't that what Jesus took care of when he instituted the table? Matthew 26, 26, he says, this, this bread, this is my body. Matthew 26, 28, he points to the cup and he says, this, this is my blood. So it's not difficult, Rome says. Jesus said we need to eat his flesh, we need to drink his blood in order to receive blessings from him, in order to receive grace in his name. And then he has told us where we come to eat his flesh and his blood. We come to eat his flesh and his blood when we come to the table. And so Rome sees the fellowship 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is talking about as this kind of fellowship that Jesus is describing in John 6. That as we eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood at his table, we receive the grace of salvation. Now, how does that happen? How does Christ offer us his literal body and his literal blood in the elements at the table? Well, Rome says that that happens by a process called transubstantiation. Don't get hung up on the big word, transubstantiation. It just means that the substance of the elements has been transformed, transubstantiation, into the body and blood of Christ. Now, there's a, a lot of confusing discussion around how exactly that takes place. It deals with Aristotelian uh, categories of accidents and, and this and that, and we're not going to get into all of that. We're just going to get to the substance. Yeah, good. Yeah, whoever said good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to get to the substance. For Rome, when the priests utter the words of consecration, they call the words of consecration. You guys know what the words of consecration are. Hoc est corpus meum. Right? This is my body. When the priest utters those words, then the bread and the cup become what they refer to as the consecrated host. Okay? So in uttering those words, the bread is transformed by the authority of the priest into the body and blood of Christ. Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1374, says this. In the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, you guys remember what that word Eucharist means? Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving, yes. In the blessed sacrament of the Thanksgiving... They say the body and blood together with the soul. Now pay attention to this language, okay? Pay attention to this. In the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. You understand what that's saying? That's saying that Jesus literally inhabits the bread and the cup whenever he comes down through the words of consecration. In fact, I've read, I didn't have this quote. I 
didn't have time to bring this in, but literally Catholic teaching believes that when the priest utters those words of consecration, he is ordering Christ to come down from his throne and inhabit the elements before him. This is why they genuflect whenever they come into the presence of the consecrated host. They believe that they are literally coming into the presence of Jesus in the host. So they believe that these things come. So, so in the same way, according to this, the same way that the Son of God literally inhabited flesh and blood when he became a man. In that same way, in the sacrament of the Mass, he is entirely physically present among his people. Now there's something very important for us to understand in relation to this, about how the Roman Catholic views this as a means of grace. The reason that partaking in the table can communicate grace to the one who partakes of the elements, which again, remember, they define that grace as forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The reason that these things can communicate grace to those who partake in it is because the Lord's table is not merely a table of worship. It is an altar of sacrifice. That's why they call it the sacrifice of the mass. Paragraph 1414 of the Catholic Catechism says this. As sacrifice or as a sacrifice... The Eucharist is also offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. Now, I'm going to get to the point where I call this what it is, but this is blasphemous. This is heresy. I'll bring that out more in a minute. But see here very clearly, according to the Catholic Catechism, right now, this is the Roman Catholic teaching on what is taking place when the Mass is being offered. It's not merely a commemoration feast of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is literally offering up Jesus over again as a sacrifice. A sacrifice to make, it says here, reparation for the sins, not only of the living, but also of the dead. The Catholic Church says this is what causes the table to be a means of grace because this is what causes the work of redemption to be carried out in the life of a sinner. Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1364, it says, as often as the sacrifice of the cross is celebrated on the altar, the altar where the mass is being offered, as long as the sacrifice of the cross is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is being carried out. So you can't be redeemed if this isn't taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. Paragraph 1667, the Catholic Catechism. It says that the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. No, I hate that language. The victim. The victim. Well, I'll get to that in a second. The victim is one and the same. The same, the same victim now offers through the ministry of the priest who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. He goes on to say, in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, 
the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. Now, I bring all of this straight from the catechism so that everyone here and anyone listening online knows I didn't make this up. Okay? Here are the sources. Go read them for yourself. The Catholic Church will use language to describe this as re, a, a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. But what we need to understand is that when that representation is being presented, it is not merely a representation. Do you get that distinction? It's not merely representing the body and blood of Christ. It is literally a representation of the body and blood of Christ, and therefore a representation of the sacrifice when the bread is broken and the cup is drank. Now, I hope that none of you need me to say this, but just to be clear, this is not just error. This is heresy. Now, as a Protestant church, I should hear a louder amen to that. Amen. Now, I'm not saying this disdainfully, and I'm not saying this in anger, but what you need to understand is that this is attacking the very heart of the gospel. A lot of people don't understand that. They don't understand anymore the real issues that sparked the Reformation and why people were willing to go to their death rather than worship in a Roman Catholic church. It's because Rome has lost the gospel by corrupting it. I don't say this to be mean. I simply say this because it's true. Rome says that because this is where and how Christ is present among his people and how he has ordained to give the blessings of eternal life to his people, this then becomes the central sacrament and is absolutely necessary for all spiritual life in the believer. So if you don't participate in the altar of the Roman church where the mass is being offered, you can have no salvation. Don't let any Catholic tell you different. That is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, I would have you know that this was also the central catalyst of the Reformation. The Reformers understood that the Roman position of transubstantiation and the grace of salvation that comes through the sacrifice of the Mass is an outright denial of the finality and completeness of the sacrifice of Christ. It is not merely an erroneous opinion about the finality and the completeness of Christ's sacrifice. It is an utter denial of it. When you participate in the Mass, you are declaring that the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ was not enough. you got to add something to it. It's heresy. Just listen to Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. I've seen multiple Catholics converted just by reading this passage. I just, just oversaw the funeral of one who went on to glory. Praise the Lord. Hebrews 9, 24, it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but Christ entered into heaven itself 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's our hope right now, guys. That Christ in his ascension is not just sitting, sitting on his throne for himself. He is sitting on his throne interceding for us. It's the glory of the gospel. But verse 25, he entered into heaven itself, nor was it that he would offer himself often. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Now you see the connection here between what the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about and what is taking place in the sacrifice of the mass. What happened in Israel? There was a sacrifice being offered over and over and over again, daily, monthly, yearly. All as a reminder that sin had not yet been dealt with, that the, the way into the holy of holies had not yet been unveiled for the people. And what happens in the sacrifice of the mass? Is it not the same thing that's taking place? Sacrifice daily, over and over again, being offered to deal with sin that the Scripture says were already dealt with when Christ hung on the cross. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, verse 26, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. You know what it means when the crucifix is held up and Jesus is still hanging on the cross in the Roman Catholic Church? Do you know what that means? That means that he is still the victim of your sins. He is still suffering for your sins in the sacrifice of the Mass. Blasphemous. Utterly blasphemous. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, this, here's the hope of the gospel. This is the true gospel. The uncorrupted, unadulterated gospel. But now, once at the consummation of the age, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not many times over, not through being represented upon an altar, but once upon the cross, he made satisfaction for our sins. That's it. Christ does not have to be offered over and over again, either in a bloody manner or in an unbloody manner. That work was completed when he breathed his last breath on the cross and uttered the words for all the world to hear to tell us die. It's finished. It's what Hebrews 10, 14 says. We do not need to re-offer or represent the sacrifice of Christ in order to make it a fresh propitiation for us. It's the language that the Catholic Catechism uses. For by one single offering, Hebrews 10, 14 says, by one single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those whom the Holy Spirit is sanctifying. That's your hope, beloved. That is all of your hope. You've been perfected for all time through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For the Roman Catholic, contrary to these verses, Christ has had to be offered often in order to save his people from their sins. Because as you sin, in the Roman Catholic understanding, you continue to stir up God's wrath and anger against you. You guys know the difference between the venial sins and the mortal sins? Venial sins are more common sins. The mortal sins are the ones that you can't be forgiven from except for like, serious 
what do they call that? Penance. Thank you. Serious penance. For the Roman Catholic, you need a fresh propitiation after you've sinned. You need a fresh wrath satisfier to take care of it for you. And therefore, that propitiation is remade for you on the altar of the Mass. But this verse, Hebrews 10, 14, says just the opposite. This verse says that the church does not need, Christ does not need to be represented for the church, either in a bloody manner on the cross or in an unbloody sacrifice on the Roman altar of the Mass. He doesn't need to be re-offered in order to guarantee forgiveness for his people or strength and grace to help them run the race he set before them. Christ has presented himself once for all to accomplish all of that. And by that one-time sacrifice, true believers have been perfected for all time. That is the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you, you, listen, we're not at this point yet. I hope we're going to get there. But you need to make sure that you understand this as we move forward. If you have truly been born if you've been born again, have you? Yes. Have you been born Are you one whom the Holy Spirit has united to Christ? The Spirit of God has given you a faith, a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're now resting in the truth of His gospel. You're turning away from sin, not because it's some duty that you have to do, but because you hate your sin and you want to draw near to Christ. Have you been born again? Have you been made a new creature in the Lord Jesus? Well, if that has happened in your life, and you have been brought by the Spirit to confess and believe in Jesus Christ with sincere faith, here's what you need to get. You need to get this, okay? Your sin will never be able to diminish the finished work Jesus has done for you. I don't care what it is. I don't care how much of it there is. When you turn in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus as a son and daughter of the King, there is nothing that is going to diminish what He's done for you. That is the greatest news in the world, especially when you see your own failure so often. Haven't you had fresh reminders this last week of how much you need God's grace? Man, I see it every single day. I see it almost moment by moment how much of a failure I am in relation to Christ and how far I fall short of His glory and how much I need the forgiveness of God. And yet God comes to me in Christ and says, Son, there is nothing that's going to diminish what my Son has done for you. You rest in peace. You have faith in Him. You're one with me. I know I get amped sometimes. <laughs> and I know that that makes some of you uncomfortable. And I'm sorry for that. There's really nothing I can do about it. <laughs> but I, and I don't mean that to shame anyone. I, I don't, please, please hear me right there. I, I just mean, bless God. Praise the Lord for a finished salvation. You know, to make the cross of Christ, to, to make, to, okay. To make what happens at the Lord's table a sacrifice of representing Christ. Do you understand what that does to the gospel? Do you understand what that says back to God? 
To believe in something as heretical as a sacrifice of the mass is to mock the the perfections of the finished work of Christ. And it is to outrage the spirit of grace who offers the promises of the Lord sealed in his blood to you. And it is to insult the grace and the love of the Father who sent his Son to be our perfect and complete Savior. You are insulting God when you participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. The Reformers understood that. When the celebration of the table is turned into something like that, an act of offering Christ by the priest to obtain grace by re-sacrificing the Lord in an unbloody manner, then the table has been turned from a means of grace to a means of condemnation, a means of defaming and degrading the finished work of Christ for his people, and the Lord will have his vengeance. Now with Spurgeon, I don't believe that every single person who is a Roman Catholic is going to go to hell. I read something from Charles Spurgeon where he met a priest, a Catholic priest in France that he knew had been born again. Now, I can't speak for that man. I don't believe that every single Roman Catholic is going to go to hell because they belong to the Roman Catholic Church. However, if you understand what Rome teaches and you are truly holding to the gospel that Rome teaches, that gospel is not enough to save you. It is a corruption of the true gospel, and you need to repent of it and turn to the living and the sufficient Savior. There are some who reacted against this because they understood what was at stake. Uh, Even back to the 1100s, there were people who were reacting against this teaching. It became the official Catholic teaching in the year 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council. But John Wycliffe would be one name that reacted and responded against this. Jan Hus, John Hus, and they were both condemned for it. In fact, Wycliffe was exhumed from his grave and his bones were burned and they were scattered in a river so that the very memory of him would perish even as his ashes had been dissolved and dispersed. So there were many who reacted against this, but it wasn't until Luther that the biblical understanding of the table as a means of grace began to be recovered by the church. Now, I want to come back to, (laughs) we're going to extend this message again to next week. I'm sorry. (laughs) But let let me end here on Luther and just explain Luther's view of what was taking place at the table. And then we'll get to the Protestant understanding next week. Luther's view of the grace that was being offered to the believer in the table was similar to that of Rome in one sense. Uh, Luther's smaller catechism says, uh, concerning the question, do I have that up there, Hans? Okay. Here's in Luther's smaller catechism question, what is the benefit of this eating and drinking, eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ at at the table, the sacrament of the altar, as he calls it? Can you go to the next slide? Luther identifies the benefit as These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. I think that's Matthew uh, 26, 26. Oh, go back. Oh, 28. There you go. Thank you. Thanks for correcting me. All right. What What is the benefit of eating and drinking? Go to the next slide. 
These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins show us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given to us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. So Luther's understanding of the benefit that believers were receiving at the table was very similar to that which Rome understood to be the benefit. It's forgiveness, right? But it's in a totally different sense than what Rome means by it. His view of how that grace was received was radically different. Jesus Christ was truly being presented at the sacrament of the Lord's table, but not for the purpose of being re-sacrificed in order to obtain fresh forgiveness of sins, but simply to hold out to the people the promise of his forgiveness of sins that he had already earned by his one-time sacrifice. So Luther made a radical break with Rome when he made that statement. However, where Luther did not go far enough was in his understanding of how Christ was present to bless his people when they came to the table. For Luther, Christ still was physically and literally present. Otherwise, as he would argue, Matthew 26, 26 and 26, 28 would have meant nothing. For Jesus says there, this is my body, this is my blood. Luther took that literally, right? And in fact, it was this issue that made him denounce Ulrich Zwingli. When Zwingli was trying to convince Luther that this was being spoken as... Um, where is it? As not literally, but figuratively, Luther turned to him and said, you are of a different spirit. Uh, you don't belong to the spirit of Christ, in other words. So he believed that Christ was present in the table, but his view was different than Rome. Rome said that Christ is present in the bread and the cup by it actually becoming his body and blood through tra transubstantiation. Luther said no. The bread and the wine do not become Christ's body and blood. They simply contain his body and blood. So Roman Catholicism says it becomes Christ's body and blood. Luther says, no, it simply contains Christ's body and blood. You can think of it as a sponge. What happens when you drop a sponge into water? The sponge doesn't become water. The sponge absorbs water. Right? So the water is in the sponge. That's how Luther viewed Christ's presence in the table, and that is known as consubstantiation. It's a benefit of Christ that is received by those who come to the table in faith. They actually physically partake of the Lord by faith. And by doing so, Luther believed that the benefits Christ promised in John 6 would be given to those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. They come to the table and they partake in the elements that contain the flesh and blood of Christ and thereby in faith they receive the promises of Christ. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, salvation. Now the, broad, the broader Protestant understanding broke with both Luther and Rome. Now, though there are variations of this, in general, the Protestants believed that sharing in the body and blood of Christ at the table was not something that was physical. It wasn't a sharing that was taking place by literally ingesting Christ through the elements. Rather, the Protestants understood that when scriptures speak of fellowship or a sharing with Christ at his table, it is speaking of it in a spiritual manner. It's referring to a spiritual communion that believers have when they come to Christ and worship at his table. Now, we're going to get to that next week, and uh, we'll come back to it then. Would you pray with me?
as we end. Father, thank you for this time we've had this morning. And um, Lord, in all our weaknesses and in all our foolishness, you are still the God who reigns. And you are still the God of grace who gives us grace and salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's our joy to proclaim his name as our only hope before you. Lord, please, please fill us with your spirit. Help us worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, bless us now as we sing our closing hymn. Lord, may it resonate with our hearts and may our voices ring loud in the courts of heaven with true and lively spirit, spirit-filled praise for the glory of the Lamb. Father, we pray you'd be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing our closing hymn? Praise the Lord, that day's coming. <laughs> Lay these stammering tongues down and we'll sing His power to save in a new way. Until then, may this benediction be true for each one of you. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.